BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Well, it seems like it's taken forever, uh, and it has, but we're finally heading down the home stretch. Two weeks to go before November 3rd, but one more way in which this election is so different. Over 27 million Americans have already cast their ballots, and 95% of those who still haven't voted say they've already made up their mind and are not about to change. So Donald Trump and Joe Biden are both still running around the country, aiming to persuade those few undecided voters, yes, but mainly working to energize their base to get out and vote. Even veteran political correspondents say that for many reasons, they've never seen an election like this one before. Even veteran political correspondents like Dan Balls, chief correspondent for The Washington Post, who's been a political correspondent for The Post since 1978 and has written several books on presidential campaigns. We caught up with Dan Balls this week to get his take on where things stand on campaign 2020 with just two weeks to go. Hello, Dan. Good to talk to you again. Been a while. Hello, Bill. Nice to talk to you. Yes, it has been a while. Yes. So let me ask you, you've covered a lot of presidential campaigns. Um, Have you ever covered one anywhere near this one or like this one? No, for, you know, a hundred reasons, Bill, but I mean, primarily because of um, the nature of the stakes in this campaign, A, and B, the degree to which COVID-19 has affected every aspect of the campaign. Uh, This is certainly the first presidential campaign I've covered from uh, my own house, uh, (laughs) (laughs) which is a great frustration, frankly, but um, um, it is what it is. For you, it's kind of the old front porch strategy, I guess. Right? Yeah, it's not an ideal way to do it. I mean, that uh, you know, there's a lot that one can do from you know a telephone, but there's things you can't do from a telephone, and that you know that's the that's the one piece of covering this campaign. That I mean, it's both frustrating, but I you know I think it it just kind of limits what you feel you know. I mean, the the inability to be out in some of the battleground states and to have a chance to have conversations with, with people, um, you know, Mm -hmm. polling is, polling is helpful, obviously. Um, but personal conversations with people are also helpful and you put the two together and, you know, you sometimes come to a different sense of things than just from one versus the other. So with roughly two weeks out, how do you see since the lay of the land to day, knowing that things might change. But how do you sense the lay of the land today? Well, I, I, I talk about it from two different angles. One is, um, you know, from the overall national uh, perspective. And mm-hmm. that looks quite good for Biden, frankly. I mean, he his lead in the national polls is somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, eight points or nine points, you know, depending on kind of which polls you put into the into the bucket to do the averaging. Um, and you know, we've we've not seen a campaign like that. We've not seen a margin like that for for quite some time. I mean, the best Barack Obama did in 
2008 was what seven points, um, and in a in a highly polarized environment, um, you know you're just not expecting to get landslide numbers in a national poll. But again, mm-hmm. the national polls are the, are national polls, and they tell you about the popular vote. You, you can you can try to extrapolate from national polls and say. Nobody's ever put together an electoral college majority losing the popular vote by seven, eight, nine points. So you would say on that basis that that Biden looks pretty good. If you flip it around and then look at it state by state, um, you know, you can come up with a different perspective or conclusion. And and that is that um, in the Sunbelt states that are most important to to Trump and to Biden, which is to say Florida, North Carolina, and Arizona, the polls are are very close. They're certainly seemingly within the margin of error, which means that Trump certainly has an opportunity to win those states again. Uh, And if he were to do that and and hold everything else he held the last time, then he really only needs one of those three northern states uh, mm-hmm. Wisconsin, Michigan, or Pennsylvania, uh, in order to win. So, in that sense, you say, well, he still has a path. And and people who say there's no path for him, I think, are 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 being overly, you know, overly optimistic about what might happen. Um, you know, General Malley Dillon, who's the campaign manager for uh, Vice President Biden, did a memo to donors that instantly leaked to everybody. And she made the point that the you know that this is a closer race than you know than some people might think, and and I think some people probably said, well, she's just trying to you know avoid the issue of complacency, which she sure certainly was, but um, but she you know she's a very savvy person and knows the state by state issues and knows that one thing that the polls are always a little bit squishy about is what is the actual composition of the overall electorate. Right. Um, and likely voter screens can, you know, can help on that, but they're, they're, they're somewhat imprecise. Um, I saw on uh, CNN this morning that they, they looked at the t- at 10 states, uh, swing states, battleground states, whatever you want to call them, uh, that Trump won in 2016 by 10 points or less. Uh, in eight of them, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, Georgia, and Iowa, Joe Biden leads by anything from one percentage in Iowa to eight in Michigan. Uh, the other two, Ohio, they're tied, and this is the average for these states of all the polls. Uh, in Ohio, they're tied, and in Texas, Donald Trump is up by one. So as you say, <laughs> that could change, right? But at this point, even in the battleground states, um, Donald Trump's got some work to do. Oh, I, I don't think there's any question about that. I mean, he, he, he clearly is having to defend some places that, you know, a year or two years ago, you would have said he would not have to defend. I mean, Ohio looked like it had moved pretty decisively into his column uh, in 2016, and that that was likely to hold that the that the mm-hmm. that the suburban strength that Hillary Clinton demonstrated in Ohio uh, was more than offset by the by the rural strength that Trump had demonstrated, and that you know an eight point margin in a state that we have always considered 
you know, as my friends in Ohio like to say, considered the decider state mm-hmm. uh, a, a true battleground. It looked like it wasn't necessarily a true battleground. Similarly, in Iowa, which you know, which through most of the of the campaigns since two thousand, um, has been a, a quite competitive state. Um, Trump did did very well there. I think he won it by nine points, um, somewhere between nine and ten. Um, four years ago, and and that too is a is a battleground. Uh, Texas, I, I wrote about Texas over the weekend as to me the most intriguing state in the country right now, simply because if Texas were to flip to Biden, it would crush uh, any opportunity for Trump to to win re-election. I mean, with you know with the number of electoral votes that Texas has, that would break the back of the Trump campaign, and and it is it is clearly competitive right now. I don't know whether it's a one point margin for Trump or a three point margin for Trump, but it's, you know, it it doesn't appear to be the kind of margin you would expect. He won that state by nine points four years ago, which is a comfortable amount, but it's less than, you know, than any Republican had wanted in a long, long time. So um, the fact that he is having to defend Ohio, Iowa, maybe even Texas, although I don't think either Trump or Biden is putting real money into that state simply because it's it's so costly, and even with all the money they've got, they got to put their money where, you know, where it counts first. Um, but yes, he's got work to do, and 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 in more places than they would certainly want to have uh, two weeks out. What do you attribute as the deciding factor or factors in the way the polls look today? Is there any one issue that cuts through, or is it as a, you know, our mutual friend Jonathan Martin from the New York Times suggests it's Trump's personality that's the issue, or is it uh, his record for four years, or just the fact that Joe Biden's not Hillary Clinton? What? Well, I, you know, it, Bill, I think it, it's in some ways all of those. Um, you know, Jonathan's right that that a lot of this has to do with the president's personality and his behavior. Um, and and I think that's one reason why the polls have been relatively stable for for a f- fairly long period of time. Mm-hmm. Most people made up their minds some time ago what they thought about this president and whether they thought he deserved a second term or not. And those people really haven't budged uh, in any notable way for you know maybe a couple of years. So there's that. Um, the the fact that Biden is not Hillary Clinton is certainly a factor. the The Trump campaign has, you know, has done everything it could think of to try to demonize uh, Biden, and it has not had the effect that they had hoped. Um, in, in in some polls, Biden's favorability rating has actually gone up a bit over the course of this campaign, which is kind of unheard of when you think of you know modern campaigns. That if mm-hmm. somebody unloads you know tens of millions of dollars of negative advertising on somebody, uh, it usually drives up their their negative uh, numbers, and it hasn't had that effect. I mean, Biden is just a different politician than Hillary Clinton. She came into that campaign, obviously, with, you know, with, you know, two decades of, of uh, attacks on her and her husband, and therefore a lot of baggage, and she was not able to get out from under that. Um, Biden didn't suffer from that going in and has been able mm-hmm. to avoid it. Um, but I think the third factor, and as we've looked at our polls um, over the last um, two months, really, the, the coronavirus pandemic has, is a big problem for Trump. Um, one of the things that, that 
Scott Clement, our polling director, and Emily Guskin, who's the, the number two in that unit, have looked at in most of our polls is the people who have a favorable impression of the way Trump has handled the economy and a negative impression of the way he has handled the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And those people net out in favor of Biden, which is to say, for those people, the coronavirus uh, issue seems to be more important in making uh, their voting decision than does the economy. So I think it's all of those factors together. But a lot of it just has to do with people People made a judgment on Trump a long time ago, and they haven't changed. Yeah. Uh, they may also tie the coronavirus and the economy together, right? As Well, they uh, do, yes. Um, but me- Meaning but some, the economy suffered because of the way Trump has handled the coronavirus. I, I haven't seen the in, interior of your polling, but it's just yeah. Although I think some people say the you know the the economy suffered because the state or another state shut down the economy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think some people right. some people do accept the idea that that Trump is not solely responsible for what has happened to the economy, uh, other than that his handling of the pandemic. Um, has made it difficult for the economy to rebound as fast as he claims it is rebounding. Right. So on those issues that you and I uh, talked about that are, that are factors, um, I was struck this morning. Um, you probably got the same tweet or saw it that I did uh, when I woke up and looked at my phone. There was a tweet from uh, Donald J. Trump talking about Hunter Biden and Hunter Biden and Ukraine. And I told you he was guilty. And now this proves that he's guilty. I mean, it's kind of like beating an old drum, isn't it? I mean, is that really going to turn things around for him? Is, does he believe it will? Um, I, I don't know whether he believes it will, but he certainly is trying to make it uh, an issue, and I suspect trying to set it up to talk about it in the debate on Thursday night. Yeah, um, the, but he's been trying a long time. He has been trying a long time. They have been trying a long time, and it and it hasn't, you know, it hasn't had any real impact. It's hard to believe that um, that the son of the former vice president and whatever business dealings he had and what other people may think about the, you know, whether it was appropriate or not. Um, and even Hunter Biden has said in retrospect, it was it was not um, that that is that is going to be the issue that decides the presidential election. I think they're you know, we're just I mean, we're we're dealing with historic problems right now. Uh, and it's it's hard to believe that that Hunter Biden is going to break through in a way that changes the minds of people who are you know who who may be undecided at this point. Certainly, mm-hmm. it energizes uh, Trump's most loyal supporters, but they're they're they've been quite energized with or without the Hunter Biden issue. So I, I don't I don't know, but they're he is doing everything he can to kind of try one more time to put it into play in the last two weeks. I mean, maybe he thinks this is, you know, the 2020 version of the, you know, of the Comey intervention uh, in the last couple right. of weeks of the campaign four years ago. Um, but uh, seemingly this is different. So if you look at the two weeks left, roughly, um, Donald Trump's got to turn this around. Um, so my question is, can he turn it around? And is this week's debate such an opportunity? The debate is an opportunity, but every opportunity he has had, he's squandered. 
um, he had an opportunity in the first debate, and he chose to, you know, have a strategy <laughs> in which, you know, he he came off as confrontational, bombastic, uh, combative, belligerent. You know, pick the pick the adjective. Um, but it was it was something that I mean, I I talked to I've talked to some Republican strategists who said. Before that debate, they seemed to be seeing a little bit of traction that Trump was getting. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, mm-hmm. at the margins, but that he was getting it. Uh, and that, that and then the fact that he contracted COVID-19 just seemed to kind of stop that. So he had another opportunity in the town hall meeting last week that was on NBC. Um, and Savannah Guthrie turned out to be a very, you know, a very tough uh, interrogator, right. um, and and he chose to, you know, pick a series of fights with her, and again in, in a way that it, it just doesn't help him. Um, if he's if everything he's doing is reinforcing kind of what people think about him, um, I don't know whether it's possible at this point for him to do something that changes people's minds. Let's say he <clears throat> he comes in. Thursday night with a with a kind of totally different personality, more much calmer, more <laughs> yeah. ref, more reflective, uh, perhaps self deprecating, um, in which he acknowledges that he's made mistakes. You know, just you know, kind of across the board, a different Donald Trump. I'm not sure that's possible. Um, you know, after four years, we've seen that he doesn't change. Uh, he didn't change from when he was a candidate to when he became president, as some people thought he might. He hasn't changed as president. So will will we see a different Donald Trump Thursday night? I'd be very surprised. You mean we're still waiting for the pivot? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, there's one other way that, uh, that Donald Trump, I think, believes that he can turn this around, and that is his daily campaign rallies, which um, – Jason Miller, one of his top aides, said are soon going to be not just one a day, but two or three campaign rallies a day. I mean, to what extent are these in any way expanding Donald Trump's base or reaching out to people he doesn't already have? Well, the I mean, the, the quote unquote secret weapon that they may or hope to have is that they are going to hope to turn out people um, particularly in those battleground states who are who who were Trump like supporters in 2016 but who didn't vote. Got so it. that what that means is that in those, you know, in those outlying areas, not the cities and the suburbs obviously, um, but in the in the in the exurbs in the small towns in the rural areas um, that that they 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 drive those margins higher than they were 4 years ago. And that they drive the the raw turnout uh, higher, um, and if they can do that, then you then you do change the composition of the electorate. Then you then you have a, mm. a different balance between you know kind of Trump world and and Biden world in terms of geography and, and types of voters. Um, so you know give give the president credit. I mean he he does have a. a Seemingly a tremendous amount of stamina and energy, even yep. after having, you know, had the, the coronavirus. Um, and in, in down the stretch in 2016, he was going to more places than Hillary Clinton was. He was, you know, his days were longer and, and his rallies were more boisterous, enthusiastic. And I think he's he he knows that that helped turn the tide 
in the last few weeks, four years ago, and maybe it will this time. I don't know that he knows anything else to do, um, and so he's going to do it. And so uh, we'll see whether it whether it's different this time. And we're talking with Dan Balls, the chief correspondent for the Washington Post here on the Bill Press Spot. We haven't talked about the Joe Biden campaign yet. When we come back, we'll catch up with Dan and get his take on how Joe Biden's doing. Today's podcast with Dan Balls of the Washington Post brought to you by the American Federation of Teachers, 1.7 million strong and over 3,000 local affiliates across the country. Teachers helping kids and parents get the best education possible in these difficult times due to COVID-19, in-person teaching, online teaching, the hybrid teaching, and including 80,000 early childhood teachers. We salute the members of the AFT under President Randy Weingarten, thank them for the great work they're doing, and thank them for the support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to Amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's Amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. And we're back with Dan Balls from the Washington Post. So, Dan, I do have to ask you, before we talk about the Biden campaign, what about the fact that, uh, as of this morning, 28 million Americans have already voted? <laughs> We've never seen that before, for sure, right? It's it's rather astonishing, isn't it? I mean, when you look yeah. at, when you look at the the number of people who are voting, I I talked to somebody who's very smart about data and you know stuff last week about this, and I said, can we draw any conclusions about this? And, mm. and this person said, not yet. Um, and the the reason is many states have changed the 
you know, the rules on early voting. There's more early voting available today uh, than there was four years ago. And we know that many more people are voting by mail and that in some states it's easier to vote by mail than it has been. So any comparison to what was going on four years ago is kind of an apples and oranges. Um, we don't know whether it's simply, you know, we're, we're just moving forward when everybody votes and that at, at a point in this early voting period, things will slow down dramatically and, and we'll have what we've always seen, which is, you know, X number of people voting. They just happen to vote earlier mm -hmm. or, or whether this represents some kind of a surge. Now, you know, I know that Michael McDonald, who runs the U.S. Election Project, believes that we're going to have record turnout. And, and I think he's not the only one. If you talk to pollsters in different states, everything they have been seeing for, for many months has told them that the turnout is going to be quite large this time. Um, but it is, it is quite amazing to see the, you know, the lines of people waiting to vote yeah. and the number of ballots that have been requested and the number of ballots that have already been turned in. Right. And it's and it's not just in one place; it's in all kinds of places. Uh, and certainly, those are people that um, they're in the bank, right? One way or the other, those votes are in the bank. These are not people that can still be persuaded to change their minds. So the audience, the the available audience for to pick up votes shrinks, right? It it does. I, I mean, a couple of things to say about that. One is we know that there aren't that there weren't that many uh, truly undecided voters you know, at the start mm -hmm. of, of this fall season. Um, so that's one thing. Um, and I, I, I think what we're not clear about is whether the people who are voting are people who knew how they were going to cast their ballot, you know, six months ago um, and just have been waiting for the opportunity to do it and don't want to take any chances of, of waiting too long. Um, whether, you know, whether the Biden or the Trump campaigns are, are banking people who were undecided but suddenly became decided and decided to vote early. I don't know the answer to that. But as you're right, every vote that's been cast is a vote that's not going to change. Um, now, one, mm -hmm. you know, one question about, the, about mail ballots in particular um, is, you know, is spoilage. Um, you know, there, there, are, there are rules in every state on right. what you have to do mm -hmm. with your ballot. And if you, you know, if you mess it up, that vote will not it count. count. In some states, you have an opportunity to correct it, uh, but not not in every state, as I understand it. Right. Um, so let's talk about the Biden campaign. We've talked a lot about the Trump campaign. Uh, Joe Biden's run a very different kind of campaign uh, for a long time, <laughs> staying in his basement. Uh, now he's out and about, but in a very limited fashion. There's a lot of social distancing. You know, this this drive-in with his cars kind of thing, and raising a ton of money online. Um, how often, you know, just, you've seen a lot of campaigns. How do you rate his campaign for, for adjusting to the times, let's say? Well, they have, they have done this, I think, for two reasons. Starting out, I think the main reason that they kept him at home was to, you know, protect him as much as possible from contracting the coronavirus, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, for somebody who's as, old as he is, he's obviously in a high risk category. And the less exposure he has, the less he is out, um, the, the, the less the risk that he's going to contract COVID-19. So I think that was part of it. And I think then 
what they discovered was, well, you know what? Staying at home is not hurting him. <laughs> so right. why yeah. why suddenly, you know, succumb to, you know, the beating of drums of nervous Democrats who say he's got to get out there, he's got to campaign, he's got to be everywhere. Um, you know, just kind of hold the hold the line and and see how things go. Obviously, he's felt the need to be out more than he was prior mm-hmm. to let's say Labor Day, and they have they have stepped that up, but as you say, it's it's certainly a more limited uh, kind of out campaigning in person than the president is doing. And I, I think, again, for for health and safety reasons, but also they have they have tried to use the campaign to kind of model what they think is behavior that is, you know, that is in contrast to the president uh, as a way of reinforcing the idea that uh, if he if he becomes president, he would be a, a, a better steward of dealing with the mm-hmm. pandemic than Trump has been. So I think it's all of those factors. But right. but a, a, but a big one certainly is to keep him safe. And also um, a very impressive three hundred and eighty three million dollars he raised in <laughs> September. Uh, unprecedented and actually has more, raised more money than Donald Trump and has more money in the bank than Donald Trump does at this point. Yeah, three hundred eighty-three million last month, on top of three hundred sixty-four or five <laughs> the previous month. I mean, it's just—it's uh, it, amazing the amount of money that that has flowed into that campaign, uh, and that has completely turned upside down what everybody assumed would be a major Trump advantage on on money uh, in in the fall because Biden during the primaries struggled. To raise money, struggled to raise money. Oh yeah, Bernie yeah. Sanders was raising money easily, as were any number of other candidates. And Biden was, you know, I mean, flat on his back in terms of money in that in that period right after um, Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, so for this to for this to suddenly, you know, just these buckets of dollars that are falling onto the top of the campaign, uh, I think surprises everybody and gives them an advantage. That they didn't think they would have their their ability now to outspend Trump on television um, is quite significant. And whatever you think of the value of TV advertising in a presidential campaign, I don't think it's as uh, as decisive as it, as some people might think. But nonetheless, uh, it's better to have the opportunity to spend than not. But we're seeing it in other you know we're seeing it in other Democratic campaigns. I mean, fifty seven million that went into. Jamie Harrison's Senate campaign in in right. South Carolina, and the amount of money that Mark Kelly has raised in his Senate campaign in in uh, Arizona. I mean, it just there there is you know there is an enthusiasm uh, in grassroots Democratic places uh, that people are are just sending money to these campaigns. So, Dan, I want to I want to close by asking you a couple of forward looking questions. Um, first. If he were to lose, um, it's too early to write the history books, but how do you think we will judge the Trump presidency? Well, I think right now it would be judged harshly. Um, I mean, it would be judged harshly for all of the things we know about, the way he has conducted himself and the way he has, you know, you know, put at risk certain democratic institutions or certainly attempted to weaken them. Uh, I, I think that would would be a, a quite harsh judgment. If on top of that he loses uh, and becomes a one-term president, that would add to that. 
Mm-hmm. And one-term presidents, not all one-term presidents are judged as failures, but um, but I think that for for Trump it would be a you know it would be a a, a double blow. Um, there aren't many uh, presidents who lose after one term if they are in the first term for their party in the White House. I mean, George H.W. Bush lost after a term, but that that was in essence the third consecutive term for the Republicans. Um, this is right. the first term for the Republicans, and if Trump were to lose it, that would you know that would go against the history. So I, I would think that it would he would be judged harshly. I guess one question would be whether you know in you know in in many many years out into the future, some of the things he has done, which which is to say the harsher line with or the tougher line with China, would be judged to have been uh, an effective and and smart change on the part of U.S. policy. There may be some things like that, that, you know, that in mm-hmm. retrospect, people would judge differently. But I think uh, overall, uh, he will he will have a tough judgment from historians. Uh, and looking the other way, were he to win, what do you think, um, from what we know of him, a Biden presidency would look like? Um, I, I, I don't know the answer to that, Bill, because... Um, we don't know quite how Biden will deal a with the pandemic, which clearly will still be with us, even if there is the the vaccine that is beginning to uh, be uh, used. Um, how he will do with the economy, and how he will manage a democratic coalition in which there is still a division between the center left and the left, right? Um, and and the pressure that he is going to feel um, in terms of of Putting forward the actual policies. I mean, it's 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 relatively easy in a campaign to you know kind of satisfy everybody. Um, and what we've seen so far in the fall is that he's he's you know he's been tougher on the left. I mean, he's emphasized how he beat Bernie Sanders and he beat the left right. um, to you know obviously as a way to try to win white working class voters um, in November. Um, but if he becomes president, that's going to be that's going to be a battle that he's going to have to you know have to navigate, and that's not always that easy. Um, also, these are very big problems that he's going to inherit, um, and so um, you know it's one thing to to win an election against a you know an opponent who's clearly vulnerable, and another thing then to be the president uh, who has to to deal simultaneously with you know with the pandemic, with an economy that's struggling to come back, um, with expectations among black voters uh, Mm -hmm. that there will be something different than they have gotten in the past or seen in the past from from Democratic presidents. Um, And and then, you know, just the question of, you know, how he assembles uh, the cabinet uh, and and how he deals with, um, you know, a Democratic House and perhaps a Democratic Senate, and how much he'll need Republican votes to do some of the things he wants to do. So um, it, it's an enormous challenge that he would take on if he becomes the president. Uh, and again, were Trump to lose, what happens, do you believe, to the Republican Party? Does Is it the Trump Party forever, or do you think there will be a comeback from, uh, let's call them mainstream Republicans? Well, that's the battle that will be waged, Bill, and and we know that that's going to happen in a sense, whether he wins or loses. 
Yeah. I mean, if he wins, it, it, it embeds Trumpism more deeply into the Republican Party. Um, but there will be a battle for the nomination in 2024 that will include people from different parts of the party. Um, but if he loses, I think that that becomes more intense. And I think that the, the kind of the non-Trump wing of the Republican Party becomes more emboldened. Um, but um, but Trumpism isn't, you know, I, I don't think Trumpism goes away. Um, if he loses, uh, there will be, you know, there will be people who will say, let's make it go away. But, <laughs> right. but, there are, but there are a lot of people who still believe in what Trump has done. And there's a part of the, Demo of the Republican coalition uh, that is very, very much, you know, devoted to kind of the way Trump did things. So uh, that's, that will be, you know, it, that will be a huge battle. Uh, right. And if he loses, it'll start almost immediately. Right. And of course, Donald Jr. is out there probably <laughs> thinking that he's the heir to that, uh, to the Trump party. Uh, well, and, 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 you know, it's hard to imagine that Donald Trump is going to disappear. That's exactly. But who do you think would, who do you see as the potential, at least leader of the anti-Trump forces or that Trump to get, get back to mainstream Republicanism? Um, Mitt Romney, Ben Sass. Well, I, I don't think Mitt Romney uh, has aspirations to run for president no, at this point. Right. Um, I mean, he's he's clearly a voice who mm -hmm. will be arguing in favor of a non-Trump or even an anti-Trump approach. But um, you know, perhaps Ben Sass. Um, you know, maybe a, a Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland. There you um, go. Right. Um, you know, there, there, there will be some people, but uh, they're going to have to be, you know, they'll be somewhat tentative, I suspect, in how yeah. they do it, because mm -hmm. they don't want to, they don't want to completely kind of disqualify themselves. Um, I mean, you want, you want to have a, if you have an anti-Trump message, you, you want to have it in a way that um, perhaps still brings in some of the people who have been supporting Trump. You've been very generous with your time. For the last question, I want to circle back to where we started, kind of, that we've never seen an election like this one for several reasons. So campaign, this campaign is so different. Looking forward, Dan, in terms of how people campaign, how they raise money, how conventions are held, do you think campaigns are going to be a lot different in the future than they, than they have been? Well, I think they will be different. I mean, I think I think the conventions show that there is another way to do <clears throat> something that you know that has clearly become a, a kind of a tired uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> a tired form. You and uh, I've been to so many of them. <laughs> yeah, although frankly, there's also some value of of having everybody together. I mean, that just there's there's something of that. So my guess is that there would be some kind of a hybrid uh, in terms of conventions. Um, I think that, that uh, everybody has learned that there are things you can do virtually that are quite efficient uh, in campaigning. Um, and so my, my guess is that, that the experience of this year uh, has taught people that they don't have to be stuck in the old ways um, and that innovation and creativity is, is certainly available and that, that technology and people's use of, of social media and all kinds of things uh, makes, it, makes it more likely that we'll see campaigns that are somewhat different in the future. Yep. 
And hopefully we will not have to cover them from our own home or our <laughs> own front porch. <laughs> Dan, Dan Balls, great to spend time with you. Two weeks to go. And whatever happens, we'll have a, the politics will roll on and on. And so you and I will still have a, a, a day job to do. Exactly. <laughs> Bill, Thanks, thank Dan. you very much. <laughs> thank you. Great. And that's it for today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to the Bill Press Pod if you haven't already done so. You know how to do it wherever you're listening to this podcast. Just pull up Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, and you are in. Meanwhile, stay strong, stay safe, stay sane, and above all, get out and vote. Our democracy depends on it. And we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.